welcome to the Cana Rinse podcast. It's volume five, issue 208. You can play along with us in Cana Rinse volume five and our next five issues of the podcast will include the games Deus Ex, that's the original. Uh, then it's Catherine with a C, but also not with a C. Then just in time for uh, the announced release of the new doom we have our first doom podcast with doom doom 2 hell on earth and final doom and other early doom related matters following that we return to hyrule no we don't it's not in hyrule it's set on koholint island and uh, legend of zelda Link's awakening after that some more whimsy with ori and the blind forest head to canerince.com for articles features reviews and of course links to our forum our facebook page our youtube channel and our Patreon, which is something we now have, it's uh, it's like a virtual online tips jar or donation box. We have no content hidden behind paywalls. So if you don't or uh, don't want to or aren't able to contribute, that's fine. But uh, if you feel that everything we create and produce uh, is worth something in return, please head that way and drop in a dollar or something a month. That would be wicked. Patreon.com slash uh, if you do prefer to get something actual, real, physical, tangible for your money, but still want to sort of contribute something and support us, we do have a shop and you can buy lovely T-shirts and bags. And that's at shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash Also, remember, we have another podcast, which is just as good as this one. Well, maybe not. It's it's different. Uh, it's all about games music. And that's called Sound of Play. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you like uh, music in games, then uh, check that out. Nine tracks every other week. Please review, rate, subscribe both of these podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn and wherever else you get them from. And we'll be your friends forever. Now joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue, it's Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Ryan Heyman. Uh, rabbit noises. And... <laughs> Welcome back. It's been far too long. It's Leia Haydu. Curses to anyone who throws something into my circle of stones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Le- Legend of Zelda. Or Zelda no Densetsu Kamigami no Triforce. Which means The Legend of Zelda Triforce of the Gods, which is a really cool title. <laughs> but in this case, I'm going to concede that I actually like. Uh, the westernized title as well the legend of zelda a link to the past now i saw somebody recently querying why was it called a link to the past because there's no time travel in this game well it's because it's a prequel as we've already discussed this game is set in the past from the two games we've already discussed the legend of zelda and zelda 2 uh, the adventure of link forgot the title there i've managed to put that game almost out of my memory um and so yes a link to the past refers to the fact that um as we now know in the established hyrule historia timeline that has recently been updated with uh, triforce heroes i believe as well the official timeline a link to the past is set in some other age of hyrule uh sometime before a time when link had pink hair but we'll come on to that so this was by nintendo ead and was directed by uh, takashi tezuka with miyamoto as a producer uh, some different writers on this one kensuke tanabe and yoshiaki koizumi koji kondo returned as composer uh, as great as as much as we loved the music of uh, zelda 2 uh, we certainly i'm sure weren't sorry to hear that koji kondo was back 
uh, in his rightful place. And the first version of this, the Triforce of the Gods, came out on the Super Famicom in Japan in November 1991, so almost a quarter of a century ago. The SNES version arrived in uh, the United States uh, in April 92, and we had to wait another six months. I can't actually remember when the Super Nintendo came out in the UK, but I think it was at some point around that summer maybe so maybe that's why we had to wait a few months it may have been a launch game in september 92 of course the game has also re-emerged on the virtual console on both wii and wii u in 2006 2007 and 2013 2014 and of course there is also a game boy advance version which came with uh, the first four swords game we're going to talk four swords in a, a separate podcast later in the series we're going to talk uh, about the three versions of four swords such as they are and that was uh, December 2002 uh, in Japan and March 2003 in Europe and US. Uh, I've not played that version. Um, we can bring it into the conversation if people have. The main thing I know about it is that they brought on board some of Link's um, vocal sound effects from the uh, the, the N- N64 games. So he, he actually ha- uh, gained his voice in those um needless to say uh, the reviews of the game were fairly stellar across the board and the game rankings average for the snes game is almost 93 and for the gba game it's almost 92 and linked past is one of the best-selling super nintendo games with 4.61 million units sold worldwide uh and as far as we know the gba cart sold uh, about 1.8 million units but enough dry statistics how about some personal histories and uh leah 1992 when this came out in america were you there at the beginning or were you too young uh well i, I wasn't too young um i would have been I, I guess about 11 uh when that came out and uh-huh. um i <laughs> my history with with the zelda series in general is a little weird though um particularly for getting as into it as as i eventually did uh because i never i I skipped the first couple of nintendo consoles um i my my parents were not so into video games they they eventually Mm. kind of not exactly caved but they bent enough to uh to let me play at least a little bit and um i had a sega genesis but i never had an original nintendo and i never had a snes Uh, the first nintendo console that i ever got for myself was um i bought myself an n64 in college and um i did not even i did not even have uh, ocarina of time which uh is another um yeah it's it's really it's really kind of weird to me because a lot of the kind of seminal Zelda games I never actually played until much, much later, yeah. um, because the first Zelda game that I ever really got into was um, actually Wind Waker, which is mm. really late. Um, I had kind of dabbled in um, just the original Zelda before that, never actually finished it, um, but the first one that I got into started at the beginning and just really absorbed myself into was Wind Waker, and then I kind of worked my way backwards from that, and um, I actually went back and checked out, because Link to the Past was um, one that I didn't get to until all things considered very recently um Mm. i keep and i I don't know if this is something that everybody does but it's something that i've done for a long time which may make me a little bit of a nerd i i keep a list of whatever games i complete in a given year um which i I guess i started doing that because of podcasting really Mm. um because it kind of makes it easier when you go back and talk about things later on and particularly if you uh want to try and do any kind of game of the year stuff um but 
also I just think it's interesting to, to kind of look yeah. at that. And uh, I went back to check and see if I had a list from the year that I played uh, Link to the Past for the first time, and I do, and it wasn't until 2012. Wow. So, uh, yeah, super late. Um, and I think that the reason that I got to it specifically when I did was that it wasn't too long after that. I think it was 2013 that um, Link Between Worlds came out for mm. the 3DS. And yeah. I thought, oh, that looks cool. Oh, I've never played Link to the Past. I should probably do something about that. Um, so I did. And since then, I have replayed it a couple of times. And it's way up there in my favorites. I still think Wind Waker is, is top of the list for me. Uh, personally, one's first is often one's uh, yeah. Favorite. I think that's definitely true. But yeah. um, I, uh, I I love Link to the Past. It's it's very high on my list as well. Even though I did play it pretty late. Uh, that's an interesting perspective uh, that that you bring, and and it should be said one of the reasons uh, that uh, we've got you on our Zelda series is because uh, although you may have come to Link to the Past late, um, your love for this series is pretty. Uh, undeniable to the point that you have uh, you have permanently marked your <laughs> yourself with its with its image. Yeah, I was going to say uh, drink every time I mention my tattoo. I, I do. I have a, a fairly large um, Triforce uh, winged Triforce tattooed across my hip, and uh, it's I really it's I love it. It's that's cool. commitment. Yeah, I yeah I uh, I really got into it. So I'm I'm terrified of needles. So if I if I did that, I'm I'm pretty serious about <laughs> it. Ryan, have you got any uh, Zelda tattoos you want to share? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Um, I, I do have a nice Link decal in the back of my MacBook, but that's that's not quite as big of a. Commitment. That's not the same level. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I was I was too young to. Both Josh and I, I assume, were too young to come into this uh, in earnest when it was released. Um, Link to the Past, anyways. But uh, I I didn't play this one until high school or college, as I was just going back to. And of pick up some of those old SNES games that I just had hadn't ever gotten around to. Um, yeah, and so it was just always on my list. Uh, I mean, if we're talking about entry points of the series, I started with like Oracle of Seasons, so uh, okay. I, was, I was a pretty late comer, all things considered. But I, I eventually got around to it, and then I replayed it again over the last couple months for the show. Lovely stuff. So Josh, yes, uh, also a relative whippersnapper. <laughs> Um, yes. When did you get around to this one in your uh, in your never-ending quest to uh, complete all the classics that were out before you were born, or or, or conscious at least? Yeah. So um, I, I, I mentioned kind of my history with the series on the the first uh, Zelda podcast, in that the Wii was actually the first uh, Nintendo console um, I ever owned. So Twilight Princess was my first uh, experience with the Zelda series and yeah from there I worked my way backwards um, and A Link to the Past was has always been kind of a, a fixture on my games that I should get around to playing at some point because they're considered classics alongside Super Metroid and uh, Symphony, Symphony of the Night and I've you know I've started A Link to the Past several times and never committed to finishing it. Not through any fault of the game itself. I just 
got distracted by whatever was happening at the time um some game came along or what have you to distract me and i just ended up leaving it so long that it didn't make sense to start from where i was i had to start from you know start from the beginning again and and part of the reason why i was so eager to be a part of um this series was to finally have the have something to motivate me to get through this game and you know cross it off my off my list and uh, yeah i'm really glad to have finally completed it this year uh, about mm. a week ago Wow. Well, my history with The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, it was my first Zelda. Um, and in fact, I got my Super Nintendo, I think early 1994, but I didn't really get my first Nintendo console as it was to play Nintendo first party stuff so much. The games I was really excited about when I got my Super Nintendo, and you have to remember I'm coming as a, as a, a British kid who came... Um, well, young adult by, the, by this point, but um, who came through playing, you know, eight and sixteen-bit computer games? I was less aware of what Nintendo meant um, and what their games were about. So, um, I'd played Super Mario Brothers at the arcades, and I, I thought it was really cool. And I obviously I knew about it, but when I got my Super Nintendo, I was looking forward to playing like some of the Konami games because I'd love those um, those arcade machines and their, their relations, things like Castlevania, Super Castlevania 4 and Star Fox was a big deal. Um, and, uh, oh, what else? Street Fighter 2, of course, Turbo. And it was actually almost as a semi-afterthought, can you believe, that I started getting Mario and Zelda games. Um, Mario, as soon as I started, you know, I got Super Mario World fairly quickly and uh, fell in love with that and played all the Mario games and uh, that I could on the Super Nintendo. And that was great. But still, up until I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was spring, summer 1995, I had not played The Legend of Zelda. I'd only really seen, I'd seen the intro of Link's Awakening on a friend's Game Boy. And I thought oh, that was pretty cool for a Game Boy game. Um, but for whatever reason, the the level of um, kind of uh, adoration that this game sort of engendered in people hadn't got through to me we hadn't had the same kind of level of um sort of review excitement and so on for this game as uh, as certain others and i i was relatively a latecomer to sort of the whole rpg thing as well really so it happened one day that i was in a game shop uh and i had uh 20 or 30 pounds rattling around my pocket well probably not back then but uh i wanted to buy a game and this gold box, you know, is one one of the games that I hadn't tried, and so uh, so I picked it up. And uh, suffice to say, I didn't play anything else for the next two and a half weeks uh, or something. And uh, yeah, so that was just over twenty years ago. Um, I'd been back to it once or twice and just done the start a few times i kept the cartridge on the snes for a long time eventually sold it with the hints book still sealed got a decent amount on ebay for that um bought it again on virtual console a couple of times um and you know dabbled with the beginning but up until coming into this podcast i hadn't played it all the way through again so my recent playthrough that finished a couple of weeks ago was my first full playthrough of link to the past but i have been telling people what a work of genius it is for the last 20 years and so i actually had that sort of thing coming back to it thinking well, maybe what if i don't like it as much as i did in 1995 um so we'll find out whether i did or not um as we go along so this game was uh 
one of the earliest uh, Super Nintendo games. Um, they crammed, uh, they gave it, they they gave it an extra, uh, well, half a meg worth of chip space uh, on the ROM for this game, I believe. So uh, it was, you know, it was larger than your traditional um, four megabit cartridge. Uh, this was an eight megabit cartridge. Um, and they also used a similar trick to as they did on Super Mario World, which is actually using slightly less colourful graphics in terms of um, number of colours per uh, tile um, to actually allow for more stuff to get on the cartridge. So it's um, so you may have seen stuff from Konami kind of in terms of sort of colour depth looking more obviously impressive but um, that's why Super Mario World and Legend of Zelda have this you know slightly kind of different look to them I guess um, they also used various clever tricks to cram this entire world of Hyrule onto the cartridge with its light and dark world by using um, sort of uh, states which are overlaid one another so the, the data only exists once but is then kind of remixed on the fly to create the the alternative uh world so lots of clever tricks going on this was a pretty big deal as a launch game for nintendo's new 16-bit console uh also worth mentioning that as with as we've already discussed with the earlier zeldas um there's some uh there's some sort of striking localization from the title the triforce of the gods uh changed to something which doesn't um doesn't reference deities in any way but also the the uh, the sanctuary in the western version is quite obviously a christian church with pews and stained glass windows um and you've got uh, there's is i think the book has a bio, um, has a, a crucifix on it again and stuff like that but uh th- essentially they they sort of i don't know sanitized is the right word when you're expunging religion from a game but they they went through that process again this stuff that seemed exotic and interesting uh to the japanese nintendo audience um was considered potentially i guess difficult challenging or excluding to to have christian sort of imagery and stuff in the western game um i don't know any 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 of you guys got any feeling about that like would you have preferred to play the japanese version just translated you know one-to-one or are you happy that they they went down the road of kind of slightly fudging the the christian side of things any uh, references to christ would certainly throw a wrench into the timeline if we're going to think about it that way <laughs> that's yeah, true i enough. actually um just finished uh reading a uh, book uh, called Legends of Localization, which oh, that's, yes. uh, yeah, a it's, a, it's a fan gamer book, yeah. and um, it's it's really kind of uh, an interesting look at um, just how the the Zelda series and it focuses on the first game, but um, how the Zelda series in general has dealt with uh, those kinds of issues, and it, mm. it's one of the things that it said specifically about the religion issue is that there's kind of this image of Nintendo as being this company that doesn't allow any references to religion and doesn't allow, you know, anything that could even possibly be considered controversial Mm. or uh, objectionable. But if you look at the first game, the the first Mm. Legend of Zelda, there are crosses, like there are Christian references in there like that, because if you look at like the graves and the cemeteries, those have crosses on them, links. uh, I think one of the shields has a cross on it. It's, it's, there are definitely these images in there that they take out later on. So I I kind of have to wonder if that's something that somebody did have a reaction to at at one point or another and said, hey, you know, you you can't do this. And, you know, now that these games are getting more popular, you're going to have to make them more palatable to 
a Western mainstream audience so that nobody comes in and says, no, no, what think of the children, you know, and, mm. and I, I don't, I don't think that I would necessarily prefer it one way over the other. I think that it's kind of a small thing uh, to consider uh, as long as you are still getting the general idea. And if that helps to make it a sanctuary instead of a church, then I, I mean, it's it's still portraying the same thing to me. Mm. Um, I, I don't I don't have a real strong objection to that either way. So as I said, this game is set prior to the events of uh the legend of zelda and its sequel its only sequel as we've discussed before zelda 2 um now as i've also said on previous podcasts the the whole sort of timeline thing is not something i like to get hugely bogged down in um i understand the overarching concept that uh the hero of time uh you know is reborn uh, and these legends come around this is you know this is classic mythical stuff where um history kind of repeats um in some cases very in, in you know the the characters look the same their name the same um but some things may have been changed um and in this game obviously one of the kind of curveballs it throws you quite early on is uh is that it appears to be all about uh the uh what's he called agonim uh, is that how you say it? i've never been sure agar agar so Agonim. Yeah. Agonim. Agonim that, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's uh, something different to the, the Ganon that, that you're introduced to in, in the original Legend of Zelda and, of course, was uh, mocked you at, at every death in Zelda 2, and of which there were many. <laughs> uh, Josh, Josh had so many deaths that he had to drop out of that podcast yeah. because he couldn't finish the game. Welcome Nobody back. blames you. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there was little blame. Um, but from my point of view, I mean, if anyone wants to, you know, speak more of the of the kind of the, the, the legend of Zelda, such as it is, that's fine. But from my point of view, this game, when I came to this game, I didn't know anything really about the legend of Zelda and the hero of time and all that. So my first experience was um, acute uh, sort of SD type um, character. Um, waking up in bed, having some sort of image, and this incredible, incredibly atmospheric 16-bit stormy night and being thrust into this adventure from the cosiness of one's bed and sort of just feeling instantly transfixed by this game world. Yeah, speaking of that, um, the thunderstorm at the beginning of the game, that is a killer way to open a game like this, especially when you consider that, you know, they are creating those effects with with not a whole lot compared to some of the later Zelda games. And most of the later Zelda games, in fact, um, correct me if I'm wrong, and I may be wrong here, but I think that all of the Zelda games after that start with Link in some kind of relative place of safety, like he wakes up in his room in his, you know, sleepy little backwater town or whatever it is, and then he goes off and does the adventuring. But here, you're kind of just thrown into that right away. You wake up and you see this this thunderstorm going on. And you know, oh gosh, it's going down now. You know, it's it's something is already on by the time you start up with this. And I I, I think that that's um that's really cool and and something that that it has over even things that technically technically may have had um better graphics or you know air quotes better graphics or uh, mm-hmm. or better resources to work with 
Yeah, so your uncle's there, um, and uh, he's yeah. It, it seems like he's going to be kind of the man or some kind of mentor, but actually that doesn't last very long, does it? Um, you quickly come across him uh, in in dire straits in the in the dungeon. Once you found your way into the dungeon, of course. I mean, this is um, one of the, the things that I found so exciting early on um, was the fact that you didn't go in the front way, um, and this. Uh, again, having not played a Zelda game before, uh, we should say, of course, and people will know, but this game returns to much more of the template of the first The Legend of Zelda, the the original uh, Famicom Disk System game, the NES game, rather than the side-scrolling adventure of Link, which was uh, met with such a uh, divided opinion in the last podcast. But Nevertheless, Nintendo obviously felt that that one side-scrolling game was was that one, and they were coming back to uh, the the template. So it's the sort of top-down, but not quite sort of three-quarters uh, tilted view, um, and very tile-based, uh, puzzle-based gameplay, and that sort of thing. And yeah, just you head out in this storm in the night, and you start off with no weapon. Um, you get the lamp. Do you get the lamp first? I forget. You get the lamp quite early, don't you? I think it's after the sword, but I could be wrong. Okay. Um, I should know by now. But, yeah, um, <laughs> so should I. Yeah, but um, the way that you end up uh, kind of following some visual clues, I think it's mainly visual clues, is that there might be someone, uh, someone kind of points you towards a secret entrance round the back kind of thing. And the fact that you end up kind of dro- basically dropping into a hole to get to where you need to go kind of sets the tone for a lot of what I find is the joy of The Link to the Past, which is the the fact that not only do you find later on that there's a whole nother twisted dark version of the world that you're in but it feels like the world's built on multiple layers even though it's resolutely two-dimensional there's stuff going on beneath your feet and even when you're in a dungeon you're now you can actually drop between floors and uh, and walk up and down between floors and it feels again uh it feels literally layered as well as metaphorically i love walking on like one of those chain link fence type floors and seeing stuff underneath me as i'm Mm. you know it's just something that i hadn't really seen in a zelda game previously and yeah for me it's the um i think the thing that i found just endlessly captivating when i first played through this was the thought that this game is like i don't know i don't know if you'd call it big or not because actually in terms of an area obviously you've got the light world and the dark world that's revealed later on but it feels incredibly dense. It feels to me, even now playing it now in, in 2016, like it's just crammed with secrets, but nothing. The thing that I think this Zelda does compared to even some of its sequels since um, Miyamoto and Tezuka came, were, were no longer the main team and A.G. Aonima took over is that Every secret in this game, every path, every hidden object, I mean, yes, some of them you will just end up with some rupees, but generally every kind of train of events leads you to something significant that's going to quite sort of um, substantially change your experience from from that point on, whether it be, you know, finding a fairy fountain where you can uh, throw items in and get them back improved or or it leads you to a place that nobody ever mentions but you find a, a cape of invisibility or something like that i, th- I think what struck me was um 
like you said, um, how how well designed the world is. Um, so I, I played Ocarina of Time before this, and I, I I'm not as positive as a lot of people are on that on that game. And um, uh, thankfully, uh, people who are fans of that game will be spared my opinions on it in the later podcast. But w- one of the things that um, disappointed me about Ocarina of Time is Hyrule Field feels really empty. The locations you go to feel really dense and populated, but the actual um, open world itself doesn't feel populated. But here, it feels like every frame, every part of the map you go to has a bit of character, a bit of personality peppered in there, whether it be just an arrangement of trees or the witch's hut or the castle or or anything like that. If it, it doesn't feel like any part of it is wasted. There's just something there interesting. And it doesn't necessarily have to be mechanically beneficial. A lot of the time, it's just a beautiful, you know, environment that's there. Um, and, and that's, you know, kind of one of the main reasons why I, I've ended up falling in love with this game is I, I just think the world that it presents is so gorgeous. Um, I think this game has visually aged um just incredibly i i think it looks really good even now um um i love the way the trees look and i love the way the water looks and on all of that i i honestly kind of hold it up there uh, alongside wind waker as one of the most visually appealing for me personally of of the zelda games and and part of that is just the art direction but part of that part of that is just the way they've arranged everything the way that they've actually put thought into how everything interconnects to it, you know with each other and it's not just it's not just well let's put some random trees here or let's put uh, you know a random village here everything flows together in a way that feels organic and there was a there was a map in the box which which I I'm sure I had up on my wall back in the day um but of course the map didn't reveal the existence of the dark world as I recall maybe it did I don't th- I feel like it didn't um now I'm even doubting that I had a map. <laughs> memory, <laughs> memory playing tricks. I am. I'm qu- quite old. Um, but uh, the the thing about the, the the visuals are yeah that I wanted to say is that I I think it's it really has aged tremendously well, better than I thought. In fact, when I first played this in the middle of 1995, it was already four years old. The game pretty much. And I didn't think it was visually impressive in the same way as a lot of the stuff I was playing at that time. And there were other games, I, you know, seeing something like Secret of Mana from Square, which had much more lush detail and more colourful graphics. And and I still like the look of that game. And I'm not knocking Secret of Mana because I never would. But this game looked kind of plain and simplistic compared to it. It looked like it was a game that was a few years old. But going back to it now, I think it looks just like it was always designed to look that way it looks 
you know, in, it, it's stylized. Every every flower, you know, the little dancing flowers that are made up of like five pixels or whatever, the little tufts of grass, um, the, both the ones that you can hit and the ones that you can't. Um, and by the way, I'm still completely obsessive about clearing grass uh, and picking up rupees that I don't need, um, picking up rocks, throwing rocks, simply because the act of doing all that stuff is so pleasurable and there's always the thought of maybe something will happen you know if i maybe i've not lifted up that rock before and maybe there's a hole underneath that leads to a room i haven't seen and all that and that type of stuff and it's interesting seeing the graphics to this game being because they've they've kind of been reinvented a couple of times the first time was a game we're going to talk about separately which is four swords adventures on the gamecube which uses the template of the link to the past graphics, but then adds stuff like um, sort of shadows of clouds. Um, actually, this game does have that. I mean, it, it, when you go into the forest, it has the whole, the, the the really simple but brilliant transparency light canopy idea where you're walking around in the woods and, and par- in, in parallax, patches of light are, are, are kind of showing through and stuff like that. Sort of that sort of level of economy was, was amazing. But the, the Four Swords Adventures graphics kind of brought it all up to the next generation and yeah if you get a chance you know we're going to be covering that game so do try to get hold of that game and and at least see it in action because i think it was stunning and then of course we had a link between worlds which is actually called triforce of the gods 2 in japan it's considered the direct sequel or or kind of a a reimagining of this game and uh and the 3ds allows the graphics of link to the past to be um again you could say enhanced in some ways but actually because they're 3d polygons in some ways i think they look at it look it's a lovely looking game i think it's great but it it looks it loses a certain amount of that 16-bit sharpness so for me i think the the look of this game is is fairly timeless i guess maybe the one thing that dates it is that and it's odd because it in in the original legend of zelda it's simply you get to the edge of the screen and the new screen you know flips on flip screen in this game you've got you've got flip screen but you've also got certain amount of scrolling um and i'm i've never really been quite sure sort of um i guess they could just handle so much more i don't know i I won't try and understand the technical side of it but it's but it's odd because it's not it's not entirely flip screen but it's not entirely scrolling either it's a kind of odd hybrid um yeah which is weird and maybe if if they just remade it now it would just be it would just be you know like scrolling around the character i don't know but then again thinking about it one of the things i wanted to mention was how much of actually just the gameplay in this game that we're talking about is it's kind of a big maze as in sometimes you can't really see you know which it's like being in a hedge maze in the sense that, you know, you could go north three screens, assuming that you can go right at some point, but you can't, especially if you haven't got the, the equipment to cross a river or, you know, you haven't got the flippers or whatever from Zora. So you can't just jump into the water and climb out the ladder the other side. And it's actually about learning where you can go and how you get from A to B. Later on in the game, you unlock a brilliant shortcut mechanism and you can warp between worlds and all this sort of stuff. But for quite a long time, uh, part of the challenge is simply how do i get from a to b and i think something that makes that even even better uh, and even more maze-like i i suppose is that there are some differences even just kind of 
world construction wise between the light and the dark world so mm. once you find your way around the light world and you think you've got this all down you go to the dark world and a path that you've been taking this entire time is now suddenly blocked off and you can't use the warp in the dark world so you got to figure out your way to get kind of from a to b without without doing exactly what you've been doing so it it plays with your expectations that way in that you can't get too comfortable because if you do you're just going to run into sometimes a literal wall yeah and i like the fact as well that you were talking about nintendo's visual clues like you mentioned like a ring of stones or something and there's i think you know there are the the, there are occasional written clues with signposts or characters giving you sort of vague mumbled clues but sometimes a lot of this stuff you just have to try out for yourself and some of the visual clues are um when transferring from the light to the dark world it's simply looking at the patterns on the ground and working out that (laughs) <laughs> that's an elevated section in the dark world but it's a low section in the light world and and that sort of thing so you know you see a heart piece in one part of the world that you can't get to and for me that's yeah that's that's a lot of the genius uh, of this game i mean just thinking about i can't remember the exact point i remember going into the dark world for the first time on this playthrough because it was only a few weeks ago and i'd completely forgotten about those other characters that are there kind of bizarre odd characters uh going you know i got transferred here and now i don't know what's happening and you're a pink rabbit uh you get you get sent through as a pink rabbit and yeah you're like what the heck is going on here this is just completely bizarre and you learn fairly quickly that it's something to do with the fact that you know you get trans transmogrified into whatever your kind of your heart animal is or whatever whatever's inside you um and then you need an item to be able to come back and be link and not be a pink rabbit and yeah i just i i still remember being you know mind blown is a is a cliche but first understanding this correlation between light world and dark world back in 1995 was quite unlike anything i'd seen before i think such an interesting relationship between the light world and the dark world as well like you come to the dark world at first and it it feels a little bit more hostile like i think there's more enemies and even the the main town which is kind of like your hub of like activity and and free refills and all your items and stuff like that so it was kind of like a fun nice place to be when uh when the residents weren't calling the guards on you um but you get to the dark (laughs) world and it's all full of uh, just monsters and and things that'll attack you. Ruins. But then, as you start to explore mm. the dark world, you find that like I, I don't know, everybody there is just trying to make their way as well, and they'll be friendly or they'll be hostile, just like in the light world. Like there's not necessarily like this isn't a divide between good and evil. Like it's just two separate realms. It mm. even looks not well. Yeah, I mean, worse. It it looks mm. it, it looks like it's out to get you. Like the the color palette is just kind of sickened almost from what it is in the light world and and, you know as you find out from it's from what happened to it it's not necessarily that world's fault that it's like this but it it does give you that that really clear visual cue right from when you first go into it that oh this i mean all the grass is kind of brown all the water's kind of murky it just it doesn't look the same as what you're used to it just it looks like something it looks like something bad has happened which it has you have skulls on the ground instead of rocks and all the the chickens are 
like skeleton chickens now yeah yeah <laughs> and and the the fret feels more chaotic and purposeless in the dark world whereas all the enemies in uh, the light world they kind of see you and go oh god that's link we better catch him but you know and march towards you in in the dark world there's just cyclops just throwing bombs around for no reason and you're like oh god okay um there's there's not a kind of guiding purpose to these monsters they're just just destroying things randomly almost and that feels more threatening than the the soldiers who are just following orders seemingly yeah and hyrule's almost you know looking at it it's almost idyllic with its uh, you know crystal blue waters and green green grass and yeah i mean and uh, even though you 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 can be uh, you know thrown to the guards in the village, uh, there's you know there's a quaint sort of pleasant restful JRPG style village tune when you're there for, uh, at first, um, and yeah, the dark world, the trees have creepy faces and, and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and obviously Koji Kondo's music changes from the uh, the sort of celebratory. Uh, bombast of of the the famous overworld theme um to this rather more sinister uh but i think absolutely incredible dark world theme um which changes of course depending on where you are but um there's yeah it's changes when you're on death mountain doesn't it both in both the light and the dark world there's they've got different music for that area of the geography but um but most of the world is has its own particular themes and and again going back to 95 um you know the 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 super nintendo sound chip was uh considered you know quite a a marvel at the time um and again obviously in the mid 90s we were were already starting to kind of move towards uh cd audio um but the sound of this game was the sound of that summer for me um the just even just the sound of warping between the light and the dark world it's such an odd noise it doesn't sound like quite like um it it never sounds like the sound effect i expect sounds more technological than it does like magic yeah well we were talking about this before weren't we in uh in, in regards to zelda games they do have um yeah and there was this there was this talk uh that miyamoto sort of uh he was saying about um you know one of the original concepts for uh zelda was that um the bits of the triforce were um were going to be chips and link was going to travel through time uh and you know be a future hero as well as a past hero and this sort of thing so this game is very much um has the whole kind of uh pseudo fantasy european medieval thing going on that jrpgs uh, traditionally fond of but yeah there is there are sort of there are little outliers and oddments that give zelda its own particular uh, atmosphere i suppose you know comparing the first legend of zelda to this this just looks infinitely more appealing to me and more interesting and it, and it's you know obviously it's rudimentary by contemporary standards but it's just little things it's just those little extra frames of animation that suggest personality in the monsters or or in link himself and stuff like uh, and we have we have to mention this this is the game where link has pink hair um and still does anyone know why it's Could such an odd thing because it's not reflected in any of the art that came out at about the same time and so i always just assumed i was like looking at the sprite wrong or maybe i had some like weird kind of 
it, it, things look different for me than they would look for everybody else. Like, I don't know, like I could not wrap my mind around it because it's never even been referenced in later Zelda games. Like he's um, like we were talking about in the green room a little bit before the show, like not even in any of the Smash Bros. recolors does he have this this pink purple hair. Like, I don't know where this came from or what happened to it. Um, Josh, uh, I know you always like to uh, talk audio so um how how do you feel about this koji kondo score for a link to the past having come to it relatively recently um i was i was kind of i think the thing that struck me most was how much of my favorite music from the series started here yeah um pretty much every iconic um zelda theme is in this game um and i i you know i i love that kind of um 16 bit eight bit era kind of um sound um i love uh soundtracks like shovel knight and stuff like that who kind of use that to um add uh personality to their own game so i i you know i really adore this soundtrack i think it's fantastic um you've already mentioned kind of the dark world overworld theme i i think that's one of my favorite pieces of music in the entire series i i think it's just you know I, I I don't want to throw around the word perfect, but it, every time I enter the dark world and hear that piece of music, I'm yeah, it's just so good. And 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 part part you know, I I want to be in that world because of the music. And I you know th- there are a lot of games I can say that for, but you know audio is really really a big deal for me um and music and and it can often and I you know sometimes I have to admit a good soundtrack and good sound design will make me forgive a lot of flaws in games like um i know you know people have problems with bioshock infinite but i think the sound design and music in that game is so good that i i kind of look past that and not that i'm you know looking past issues in this game but a lot of a lot of my enjoyment was kind of coming from the soundtrack and um i i was compelled to spend more time kind of exploring the world and just being in that world and not rushing towards the to you know towards the end i i ended up kind of uh trying to use a walkthrough as little as possible uh for this yeah. game and usually i tend to kind of give up you know especially when the deadline is looming for a cane and rinse and end up uh trying to use it but because and it is to, to you know it is the soundtrack is kind of a big deal in in this is i i just i i barely use the the walkthrough i i i ended up just enjoying being in that world and soaking in the atmosphere that the music was creating i i I adore this soundtrack. I think it's fantastic. And I want to point out as well, um, people, again, will probably know, but I think it's important that we say, likening the the audio here to, you know, something like Shovel Knight isn't necessarily entirely accurate because the thing that the Super Nintendo sound chip started to bring was things that sounded more like actual instruments than, you know, 8-bit beeps and boops where so the super nintendo you know people were wowed when they first heard like what some something that sounded something like a piano in a mario game and in this game you know there's stuff that sounds like uh, an analog of strings and brass and things like that and of course in a way it that it kind of dates it more because this is a sound that people don't necessarily try to uh recreate in in the way that 
Leah's talking about in, you know, like, you know, cool modern games that ape the 16-bit, 8 or 16-bit style. They tend to use classic chiptune music with white noise for percussion and things like that. Whereas the Super Nintendo, they'd they'd just got to a, a sound chip that could, yeah, start to emulate actual instruments, um, which gives it a very specific sound, I think. Um, a sound a sound that we shall probably never return to other than um yeah games re, you know replaying these games from this from this uh, format talking about the um moment to moment gameplay um one of the things that we struggled with quite a bit i think in both the original legend of zelda and even more so in zelda 2 although in a way that's a kind of it's a separate conversation because it's a different genre of game. But we certainly, although we did all make it through the original Legend of Zelda, um, some of the, the the combat in the later dungeons was overwhelming. Uh, yeah. Josh and I were yeah. talking about, uh, and, and Ryan as well, we were all talking about sort of saving um, between hits of enemies, you know, doing quick save. We were hitting something and then saving and then hitting something again and then saving because you could just die so quickly and it all felt a bit random with things just flying around. And one of the uh, negative comments I remember about this game, A Link to the Past, that we're talking about from our forum is uh, not feedback for this particular podcast, but it came up some time ago with somebody saying I never say, saying that they never loved A Link to the Past because they didn't enjoy the simple moment-to-moment gameplay, the walking around and the hitting mm. of enemies with swords. Mm. And I can see where they're coming from in the sense that in terms of a modern game and even then actually back in when i played it when it was a few years old it's quite rigid the the control of link and the combat such as it is is not free-flowing it's not i wouldn't say it's um it's not sort of dynamic or dramatic it's very kind of specific like you know you go up to a soldier in the field you make sure that your sword is on the correct side of him so it doesn't just bounce off his shield or whatever, and you swipe. Now, I find it very satisfying, and the sound effects that we haven't really talked about being very squelchy and, and responsive mm-hmm. play, play a large part of that. But my favourite part of this game was never the actual walking around and hitting other enemies. I think in the dungeons, they made a lot of sensible changes in terms of how much it doesn't overwhelm you with unpleasant, randomly bouncing enemies, although it still has its moments, maybe. Um, but, yeah, how do you feel about the actual, you know, I'm simply talking about walking around and swinging mm. your sword and fighting stuff. I think one of my big complaints from the first two games was how uh, just oppressively um, hostile the overworld was in that you spend a lot of time just exploring the overworld. And in the, in the first game in particular, you had to, you know, really be curious about that space that you were inhabiting, bombing the walls and trying to find secrets that weren't necessarily apparent to you at the very beginning. Um, and so uh, it, it was, it was a really a big problem for me that it so heavily kind of punished me for spending time in that world when that's what I'm supposed to be doing just because the, uh, the challenge level of the enemies that I would run across was more than I was really comfortable with spending my time dealing with. Whereas in this game, I I say like the balance of, of difficulty, um, in the enemy encounters in the overworld are, are just about right. Like it is a little, uh, 
a little, you know, the hitboxes are very small if you're trying to approach these enemies from the front. Of course, if you get them from the back, then that's that's pretty easy. But, you know, you have to really line things up right if you are approaching them from the front. But they, they do mm. add a few. Um, it's interesting because coming from the first Zelda game and uh, even some of the uh, Game Boy ones later on, like you're very much stuck on a like a grid system whereas yeah. this game allowed a lot of like diagonal movement and they had some really interesting like concessions made for like strafing mechanics mm-hmm. where you can kind yeah. of like move forward and sideways at the same time in a way that was actually like yeah. really smart and something that like I don't, I don't know if they like a lot of games hadn't figured out how to do strafing in two dimensions um you know even up until we had two thumbsticks to work with like that's not an yeah, yeah. easy ask there but uh so it does a lot of intelligent things it's it's a little annoying at times but i think coming from the previous zelda games i uh this was kind of a godsend for me what you were saying about it feeling rigid um i i think that that's true but i think it almost is in service of the rest of the gameplay because i think that if it i, I don't think that the combat is necessarily the point mm-hmm. uh it's important certainly but i i think that it's more of a puzzle than it is a, yeah. a combat game. And in that way, the combat almost becomes a puzzle because you know what the rules are. You know that if you hit a, an enemy from a certain direction, then it's either going to get damaged or you're going to bounce off in a certain direction. And you kind of have to keep all of that in in your mind as you're going around and as you're traversing these things. And that, that makes it more possible to have more intricate uh spaces whether it be in the dungeon or whether it be uh, outside of the dungeon in in um mm. in between the worlds or or just in um a section of forest or field or what have you um and then the enemies just kind of become other pieces in that puzzle and i i think that that almost fits um so while it is ness uh, while it is uh, sort of rigid i i think that that might almost be the point mm. uh, or if not the point at least not a detraction from it yeah, I completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, but I can also understand that if somebody came to this game expecting a kind of, you know, a swashbuckling RPG experience. Sure, sure. That, yeah. Because obviously it's not it's not turn-based combat a la Final Fantasy or something. So I guess some people then think, well, if it's real-time combat, and having played again, to bring it up again, Secret of Mana, that kind of um, sort of straddles the divide in a in a in a slightly different way but without again without giving you uh you know it's it's hardly sort of uh you know ninja gaiden or bayonetta style combat but this is very much uh yeah its own thing um and it'll be interesting as we go along in the series to talk about how they sort of approach this in the in the ds 3ds sequel and stuff like that because it all becomes very different and and obviously from you know uh ocarina of time and wind waker and through skyward sword we're, we're gonna you know the combat's going to become more and more of a kind of thing but i think you're absolutely right back here it's it's uh it's in service of this yeah top-down puzzle game really yeah josh yeah. What, what, what do you make of this i i think the 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 biggest improvement um when comparing this to the original zelda is just the way they arrange enemies in rooms in the dungeons yeah um whereas in zelda one it felt like there were some combinations of enemies that felt insurmountable unless you had you know the ability to save scum as we did Mm. um whereas here 
Um, I felt like they struck a good balance between, you know, challenging but not frustrating. So there were points where I died to enemies, but it wasn't, you know, ah, oh, how am I going to do this? You know, it was more just, oh, okay, I, right. So when I tried to hit this particular kind of skeleton, he's going to throw a bone at me. Okay, I'll remember that next time and try and corner him before striking him. It felt more reasonable in, in terms of what it was asking you um, as a player to accomplish. And I think just in general, the enemies are better designed around the limitations of the combat system. Um, That's not to say that there aren't moments of annoyance. I think whenever there's an enemy that shoots fireballs at you or lasers at you and you can't attack back, that's really a bit frustrating. But it happens rarely enough and in rooms not overly populated with uh, difficult enemies that it wasn't a huge problem for me yeah and it it felt to me going back like this was the start of we'll talk about the bosses in a minute but this was the start of individual enemies being puzzles as it's kind of an extension of what leo was saying but so there are the ones which kind of actually mirror your movements for instance uh in the dungeons and then you fire at them uh fire an arrow at them but if you stay still at that point you will also take a hit so it's about working out where you need to stand and then move after you've fired to get the enemy to walk into the arrow um but for me it's really important stuff like the fact that you chuck a pot at an enemy and in many cases it will squish satisfyingly against the wall there's a lot of satisfaction to be had even though the combat isn't deep as such uh in that sense in a in a kind of you know combos and and uh multi-hit kills and whatever else type of way it's got its own uh yeah its own rule set like they said really um and, and i think also I'm struggling to sort of remember the individual enemies and and what the rules are for each of them, but different weapons have different effects on different enemies. And this is, this is an extension of the earlier game. Um, But things like the boomerang will stun enemies, but have no effect on others and and that sort of thing. Um, Some enemies can be killed with one hit of a particular uh, thing, but it will take you tons of, uh, yeah, like one hit with an arrow, compared to 10 hits with a sword and that sort of thing so part of the game is actually uh, coming up against each enemy and and trying different stuff until you've worked out it's it's achilles heel and then you remembering to use that rather than losing multiple hearts but also and this is absolutely crucial um whereas in the legend of zelda and zelda 2 although it's less of a reference point as i say you would very occasionally get a heart drop or something uh this game um, I don't know whether it actually is is kind of calculating on the fly what your situation is, um, but it certainly gives that impression at times. But also, it provides you with health when you need it. Sometimes, I mean, you can you can outpace that if if you're doing really badly. Um, you can absolutely die if you don't bother to go out of your way and collect extra heart pieces. Uh, that'll be a problem. But as soon as you've worked out some stuff, I uh, believe that Miyamoto said that the bottles in the game, of which you can collect up to four, um, some some of which are much easier to find than others, um, they are kind of your adaptable difficulty level. If you go into a dungeon with four bottles of, uh, of, of magic juice, basically, which can give you your health back, or you can have a fairy in there, or you can 
uh, fill up on magic or even magic and health if you've got the money. Um, you know, most of the dungeons shouldn't give you too many problems, but you can pretty much kind of manage it for yourself. Um, and so whereas in, in the previous two games we've just felt overwhelmed and punished at times and frustrated, uh, this was the first game for me where it, it got the balance of difficulty just absolutely spot on. In the original Zelda, it almost seemed to me like it was taunting you with those hearts. Like it would drop more hearts when you were already full on health and you didn't need them. <laughs> and yeah, no, I agree. I agree though. It uh, it did seem like it, like it was trying to help you out more than it was working against you here. Yeah, much friendlier experience overall. Um, and and that's to say, that's not to say there weren't still some challenging moments, although. Um, you know, to come on to those bosses, um, whereas in previous games it felt like they just were there to just throw as much stuff as possible and be as irritating as possible. Here again, this is where the bosses started to feel like an extension of the dungeon. Like, and I think for me the the pleasure of this is is twofold. Now, I know it's become it's become a bit of a cliche because they've gone back to it over and over again because people loved it mainly, I think, um, and because maybe it's just a great idea, but having the sort of the boss of a dungeon be defeated by the weapon that you find in the dungeon to put it in its simplest terms mm-hmm. uh in some ways it seems you know it's kind of absurd but in another way it 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 creates this mythos and gives everything a personality and a and a coherence which it might be nonsense if you think about it but it also ties into sort of classic myths and 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 things like that so i found I'm the difficulty it. I level on the bosses to be hugely variable like some of them mm-hmm. would go down with no trouble at all, and some of them took a lot more hits than I was expecting them to. Then there was that stupid worm thing, Moldorm. I don't like Moldorm. <laughs> <laughs> I had some problems. It's the one that knocks you off. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's this big worm with the only place you can hit it is its tail. But if you bounce off of it incorrectly, you're fighting it on you know possibly the only boss arena in the entire game that has no sides and has a big hole <laughs> in the middle. And so of course you you know bounce off if you hit him wrong and can go soaring off into the next uh, the next floor below you and have mm. to climb up and do the whole thing again and I, and his hit count resets i think uh, as well, it does it? yes oh yeah. it does i know it does <laughs> i had i had some trouble there that was probably yeah, so my those uh, are moments when playing it originally on the snes uh, it was simply a, ma- a matter of get it right but playing it on virtual console or an emulator you can kind of you know you can skirt around the suffering if you want to but actually as josh said i, I don't know about the rest of you but uh, playing it now i tried to abuse walkthroughs and save states as little as possible um and i think you 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 do get a a better experience by by kind of playing this game au natural whereas whereas the earlier games we found just simply you know too much of an ask in in 2015 to mm-hmm. to actually get through when it comes to the dungeons especially um i i think in both of my playthroughs, I just got really lucky and just kind of took the right route just instinctively every time. But uh, I, I didn't really find the game to be that difficult. At any, I, I didn't mm. really hit walls except for some of the overworld navigational how do I get to where I want to go type things. So it could be a little tricky. But when I was in the dungeons, like they weren't easy to the point of being trivial but they weren't challenging to the point at which I ended up getting stuck and feeling frustrated. Like it was just a really nice, smooth ride all the way through. I, I agree with that. And I think that it's largely a function of they got a lot better about pointing you where you needed to go. 
Oh yeah. And just level design and everything. It's it's not as obtuse as as the earlier games are um, by design. They just they you know they they got better about it, and I I think that's that's a welcome change, and I think that's maybe why a lot of people resonate uh, with this game so much more. Uh, because it it is that much more accessible without being super easy. Yeah, we talked a lot about um, the need for uh, walkthroughs and hint magazines and and whatever else. Uh, And obviously the resources weren't what they are now, back 30 years ago when the original Zelda games came out. But this, for me, has always been, I think, the sweet spot of, of... accessibility and signposting and not holding your hand um and i think i'm not saying you know i've enjoyed plenty of zelda games i'm really looking forward to playing um more of them as the series goes on um but i think gaming as a whole the the philosophy has moved towards hand holding in recent times and i think even the zelda games uh have that to a point Uh, even a lot of the secrets feel kind of like there i haven't got specific examples examples of this so perhaps i'm being unfair but it feels like the secrets aren't so secret in modern games like they're Mm, yeah they're there but whereas i remember finding things the first time through in this game and kind of refining them again in this playthrough even though i knew they were there somewhere in the recesses of my aging mind that i felt like i'd rediscovered all over again and this is something that's hard to kind of core qualify but uh i still get this feeling with some of uh, nintendo's kind of work from this era that it still feels like those secrets are just there for me to discover even though i know that's nonsense (laughs) it feels like they somehow got it right so that when i discover something i feel like it was squirreled away there for me to discover Mm. in my adventure and uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know what the trick to that is, but but it, it's still yeah, it still boggles my mind. And there are so many moments in this game. You know, talking about the segueing into the the dungeon design uh, in this game. Now, th- this has got more dungeons than any other Zelda game, I think, uh, because you've got you've got the the eight you end up doing, but before that, you've got four more, and then you've got the end one. So, this is is it like thirteen dungeons in total, something like that? Sounds right. So it's along those lines. Uh, yeah. It's around that. Um, normally, you know, they've got. I think Wind Waker only ended up with six because two of them were cut. Um, and you know, so so this is this is particularly large. Um, but every one of them feels like a a kind of perfectly constructed, self-contained, multi-layer puzzle. And once you're in the dungeon, now there are those. Um, the little uh, tiles on the wall that uh, is it Sahasrala uh, communicates to you and gives you the odd, the odd uh, hint. But generally, you're just kind of put in there, and and it is by and large, you, you know, you work it out. Now they, we were taught, we were bemoaning the lack of visual clues in in the first The Legend of Zelda. Things like you know, cracked walls weren't cracked, <laughs> so you just had mm-hmm. you just had to bomb the entire game to find out find out a secret. But this was when they started putting in little visual clues, you know, little kind of icons on the ground. Just the even just the way blocks were positioned on the screen would give you a little hint that something was something needs to be done. A block needs to be pushed in a certain direction, or something needed to be lit, or or See, hit. Most or, of the time, anyways. 
Like there were a, there were a number of cracked walls that didn't that were just decorative, and that was always there are, frustrating. Yeah, that's true, to me. actually, I'd totally forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasted a lot of bombs in this game. Yeah, I don't know what that was about, but um, but overall, um, did you guys all uh, get the same level of satisfaction out of the dungeons as I did? Yeah, I think so. I think that they were they were very well designed and um, really a step up from what they had been. I one aspect of them that I I really ended up appreciating was that even when I died if I had got the map or got the key or what have you I got the map I and I had the key I didn't have to go all the way back and you know get those items again after um after I died so it yeah. felt like I was com- compressing the space of the dungeon the more and more I went through it and every time I died it was it wasn't that big a deal because okay I don't have to go through that section of the dungeon again because I've got the big key and I can just go to that door that's right in front of me and that feeling of com- compressing the space in every uh, dungeon uh, ended up being something I really enjoyed um that feeling of kind of mastering an environment um and and not and not the feeling i had in the uh original zelda where i just felt lost and frustrated and annoyed that i'd have to go through this whole bit again and kill all these enemies again i think it's i think it's important that there is a sweet spot to be found like in terms of games respecting your time i feel like a link to the past definitely does but again for me it didn't go too far with with the hand holding and now i think there are a few things that i'll tell you this is this is the one and only time i ever phoned a helps line uh, you know a help, a help hints and tips line so i'd been playing zelda for for a fortnight pretty much every spare hour i had i fell in love with it um and i got to the end and i was missing one item on my inventory and I didn't, I did not know what it was. I didn't know where it was. I knew nothing. There, there was no internet. I mean, there was an internet. I didn't have the internet in 1995. Um, I had the tips manual, but I didn't want to unseal it. And I didn't know that the answer would be in there anyway. Uh, the, for those who don't know, if you bought this in an original box, and this was, part, this was partly in response to um, people getting frustrated with the earlier games in the in the, in the series uh, they included some uh, basically you know if you places where testers got stuck i think they included the solutions in a in a book a tiny little book um so i didn't want to crack that open so i phoned up the number at the back of the 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 manual the nintendo europe uh nintendo helpline out of cost of you know it's probably like 0898 number at, at 98 pence a minute or something like that i don't i don't remember um but i was i was living in my own place and i paid my own phone bill so damn i was gonna phone the nintendo helpline and it was the um i think it's the it's probably the cape of invisibility that i didn't get uh it's whichever one that you have to drop off the side of part of death mountain to get into a cave and get a cape in that way anyway i phoned up the guy you know bored sounding guy just reeled it off in no time at all because he'd obviously answered that question a million times you know just like yeah you go to here you take the you walk to this spot in the dark world and then you drop off the thing and you go in there and it's that's where it was but yeah that was that was the one and only thing in that game as far as i know that i didn't work out for myself and you know and that's including 
throwing you know throwing all the items into the fairy pools and, and all that sort of thing actually maybe what well, i think probably the most obscure thing in the game thinking about it it's the it's in the village isn't it where you drop down and there's that goblet hanging from a wall there's uh, and you throw the magic powder in and the the guy appears and oh the uh, the, the mad crazy batter, thing is that the mad batter yes mm. and and I, th- I don't know if I did find this at the time, but it, he, he talks like he's going to do something bad to you. And he says he's going to half your magic meter. But actually what he does is mean that all your magic takes half the amount of magic power to use. Mm-hmm. So, he, so he does you a favor. And I believe this character keeps turning up in, in uh, subsequent Zelda. He was and in Link's Awakening, but I don't remember him coming back since right. then. Oh, okay. Um. But were there were there any bits that like you know when when you guys got obviously you've all played it quite recently when when you got to the end how was your was your inventory looking you know did, did were there things that you'd missed uh, were there did, had you worked out that you could you know get stronger um, you know like uh, stronger wristbands and and oh, actually no that's a progressional one isn't it but uh, stronger boomerang and all that sort of thing. Um, so, so stuff like the um, the tempered blade with mm, the two black, course, yeah. uh, blacksmiths. Um, I managed to figure that one out for myself. Um, yeah, simply because you know I, I think the game does a really good job of kind of giving you enough clues to figure out what's going on. The guy's like, oh, he's gone missing, and I don't know where he is. And you've seen people kind of be, you know, trapped in the dark world and turned into animals already by that point. So it, it doesn't, it's not a huge leap in logic to think, oh, okay, so the other guy's trapped in the dark world and he's some kind of animal. So you spend a lot of time, you know, trying to find non hostile, um, you know, creatures in the world and try and talk to them. And eventually you bump into this frog and he's like, oh, can you take me back home? And you do. And, and then those two, you know, do you a favour and improve your sword, and that's great. Mm. But um, I have to admit, the final uh, sword that you can get, I had to consult a walkthrough for that because there's a lot of, you know, well, first of all, you have to have the um, the super bomb. I don't know if that's the right oh, word yeah, for the it. The super bomb, yeah, that's yeah. The- that's an odd one, yeah. Yeah, you have to have a super bomb, and then you have to vi- find the very right, specific right. crack in the the you know the pyramid yeah. wall in order to access the fairy, and then from there it's fairly simple. You just throw your sword, your tempered sword, into the water, and she gives you a better a better sword. Mm. But there was no way I was going to figure figure that out um, on my own. I I well at least. In the time I had before the podcast recording, I wasn't going to figure sure. it out. And, um, yeah, I, I did end up using a, a walkthrough for that. And um, there were quite a few um, items that I did end up not, you know, not discovering. I, I did find the magic cape um, by accident, but um, I think there's a, a a magic ability that I never discovered. So I got the the two the that medallions. are required. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got the two that were required, but the other one, I think it's the one that summons fire. Uh, uh, I never yes. bumped Bombos. into that. There are, of course, a number of optional uh, secrets and uh, various things like that, as well as 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 well as stuff that that aids you uh, through the game. Um, you were talking about those fish 
uh, Ryan, that appear after you drain the swamp ruins. Mm. Um, but you can actually uh, you can get a reward by returning those to deeper water. Uh, you'll get some rupees for throwing them back in deeper water, which is nice. Um, or you can actually catch one in a bottle and sell it to the guy who you buy the first bottle from in uh, Kakariko Village for more money. Stuff like that. Uh, there's little Easter eggs like the little pictures of Mario on the walls mm-hmm. in the village. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and uh, as usual, um, yeah, various bits and bobs like that. And uh, and there's also probably the most famous secret is the Chris Houlihan room, um, which I think in in some versions has be, been renamed like Secret Room or whatever because Chris Houlihan was a guy who won a competition, I think in... Um, probably nintendo power wouldn't it have been uh, which i know it was big in america didn't really exist over here um and so there's a room in the game where there is the guy and uh, you can collect a whole ton of um blue rupees for for not much purpose i think uh, one of the conversations that came up as regards to this game in in while we've been playing it and while some of our community have been playing it is the sort of the use of rupees now we talked about rupees as um it was almost like currency of experience in the first legend of zelda whereas in zelda 2 they actually brought in uh, xp but in this game your experience is more controlled by where you beat a boss you get an extra heart you find heart pieces you get an extra heart so rupees in this are very, pretty much for uh paying for your upgrades um and the odd yeah potions extra lives and that sort of thing um the economy in this game is broken. That's I was. That's what I was skirting around. Yeah. yeah. Would you care to expand on that? I, you just <laughs> well, since you don't really need it for that much, and and rupees are extremely easy to come by. Yeah. I just I always ended up having far more than I actually needed. Like yeah. my mm. wallet, and, and they don't even limit your wallet space like they do in most of the other Zelda games. Only at nine nine nine, I think. Yeah, and yeah. I, I I don't think I ever got that high, but I I got I got well more than i needed and that includes a lot of the um just games that you can play and side options and and you know things that that you could have gotten along just fine without and the whole thing is just based on this absurd number of rupees that i ended up having and uh yeah i I never, I never wanted for anything, and that's that's not a particularly common thing, particularly before you get those wallet upgrades in some of the later games. You can certainly spend quite a few uh, at the fairy fountain. Um, I think early in the game, I, mm-hmm. I didn't always have too many because you can, you know, pay for your, you can you can upgrade your bomb and arrow stock by several several times over can't you yeah but even there that only takes a few hundred to get you to the maximum and you right. don't have to do that at all if you don't want to yeah that's true and it's um one one uh, nice collectible that we haven't mentioned all so far are the pegasus boots which en- enable you to career about the place at quite a lick albeit in a straight line um and it also solves a few puzzles in some quite cool ways um but uh, if you just go running through large areas of grass with the Pegasus boots on back and forth, back and forth, you'll soon find yourself with an enormous amount of money. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, I don't know about the rest of you, but no matter how many rupees I had, I can't leave a rupee uncollected. Yeah. Well, you never know when you're going to need it also. <laughs> 
brief mention for something that I'm sure none of us played, uh, I'm, I'm certain, but uh, because we like to be uh, completist, we must mention BS Zelda no Densetsu, which was the Satella View um, sort of spin-off. Uh, so on the Super Famicom, there were a couple of um, what they call broadcasts, which are kind of downloadable dungeons, or they call them maps. So there was one map in uh, August 95 and another in December 95. So these these happened actually after I'd played <laughs> Link to the Past, but obviously this was very much a Japan-only thing. Um, there's a lot of information out there uh, about these, but I'm certainly no expert, but certainly uh, if you're interested, you can read up on that stuff. I don't know whether, I imagine, because people will do these things, I imagine that fans have made that content in some way available offline somehow. Yeah, I don't know. You did get to play as a different character, which is kind of neat. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like a rather modern, modern looking girl, if I remember correctly, but it's been a while since I've looked at videos. Yeah. So the, the story of Inishi no Sekiban, so it's um, mm. character from the distant town whose name has been stolen. Uh, yeah. So there, there's, I mean, there is some, you know, for, for real Zelda completists and diehards um, somehow experiencing this BS uh content would be kind of mandatory i don't think it's even particularly covered in hyrule historia because i guess it was such yeah, a i don't remember i don't it think either. so no I, I do have a quick question I, I should have done the research before i came into this but the uh, game boy advance version i know it had a couple of extra uh-huh. easter eggs but did it have any extra dungeons or anything like no meaningful i don't content I don't believe it did. Um, I haven't done that research either, but I think um, after the, obviously, DX uh, version of Link's Awakening came five years later and had a colour-related dungeon or dungeons uh, extra to the original game, Mm -hmm. I don't really know too much about the differences between the GBA version of of Link to the Past beyond what I mentioned right at the start, which is those um, extra sound effects. And obviously the soundtrack sounds slightly different because it was on a on a different machine but yes i'm unaware of any significant extra content but um listeners if if there's something we're not we're missing please let us know speaking of our wonderful community uh we must hear from some of them um we've got quite a lot of opinions to share perhaps ryan you could help me out again absolutely with some of these uh but i shall start with uh neo gaza who uh, posted at canerince.com slash forum Neogaza says so this game was released in late 91 and a friend and I both got our SNESs in late 92 we were 15 years old he went with a copy of The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past and I got a SNES for one reason only Street Fighter 2 at the time I wasn't jealous because as a 15 year old Street Fighter 2 was more my thing we finished The Legend of Zelda feverishly in order to get good at Street Fighter 2 so we could tear up the local arcades the Legend of Zelda was sold off quickly so he too could get into the Street Fighter 2 scene. A couple of years later I bought my own copy and with the Street Fighter 2 hype diminishing somewhat I was able to play Zelda with the attention it deserved. I loved every second of it. The atmosphere, the art, the gameplay, the lower difficulty when compared to its ancestors, it felt perfect. That was the time, to me at least, that The Legend of Zelda cemented itself as a AAA Nintendo franchise. The realisation came oddly late, since I had already played and finished it upon original release. Having played it recently on an emulator, it holds up well even to this day. The game smooths you in but never really holds your hand the way modern games do, and I loved that. 
Should you play it nowadays? I think you should. A Link to the Past really gave the franchise the identity that it has today. Great, timeless fun. Gabo Pinto says, I never owned an SNES and I'd already played Ocarina of Time and several other Zelda games by the time I got around to playing A Link to the Past. I played the Game I played the Game Boy Advance version, and my first time through the game, I thought it was way too hard. I remember liking the game, but not completely understanding what all the fuss was about. Last year, I played the wonderful A Link Between Worlds for the 3DS, and that inspired me to go back and to go back and play A Link to the Past again. And this time, I understood what made the game so beloved. After I beat Ganon, I immediately started a new game and played it through a second time. The art direction is so strong, and both the main Hyrule Field theme and the Dark World theme are amazing tracks. I also think that this game struck a perfect difficulty balance. It's challenging and doesn't hold your hand as much as later games, but it's not as infuriating as 1 and 2. The game ages wonderfully, and I look forward to going back to it and replaying it every couple of years. Thank you. Next up we have Tadinho, a.k.a. Daniel Gomez who says, unlike most people I know, I didn't grow up with the Zelda series. The most experience I had with it was watching my cousin play five minutes of Majora's Mask. I was so ignorant about the games that I still thought the main character's name was Zelda instead of Link. So a few years ago, in an effort to change that, I decided to go back to the beginning of the series and play all of the games to understand what the big deal was. Unfortunately, I ended up failing immediately. The original Zelda proved itself to be a challenge far greater than I previously thought. I died all the time, got lost constantly and just plain couldn't get anywhere in the game despite many attempts. I didn't even consider trying the infamous Zelda 2 after hearing that one was the hard Zelda game on the NES. I was ready to give up on the series until I decided to give A Link to the Past a try. I'm glad I did because this game quickly became one of my favourite 16-bit games of all time. From the get-go, A Link to the Past stands out from the original not only because of its presentation but because it actually tries to teach the player how to play the game and it does a pretty good job at it to the point that I would compare its introduction to those of Mega Man X and Super Metroid in how it almost effortlessly manages to teach the player all the basics without holding their hands. And while A Link to the Past might not be as open as the original, it more than makes up for it by having a really good structure that keeps the player feeling that they are always making progress and being challenged at the same time. Speaking of which, the way this game does exploration is probably my favourite thing about it. Like in the original, exploration is required to beat the game, but unlike Zelda 1, exploring the world is an absolute joy. For starters, just moving around feels a lot better than on the NES, and finding stuff is rewarding both for getting the item itself, but also by the player having to overcome a small challenge to get it. And just by the way the game is laid out, you're constantly finding secrets, which just feeds back into a loop that makes you want to keep exploring. It really helps then that you have an actual map that makes finding your way across the world a whole lot easier. And not only that, but you also unlock several different tools to facilitate or aid your exploration in some way or another. The game also does a great job at cluing the player in what to do, whether by a mark on the wall, a line from an NPC, or by giving you an item. Exploring the world, however, can only be so engaging if the world ends up being boring, and luckily, while A Link to the Past's Hyrule isn't anything too different from your standard fantasy world, it has enough character to stand on its own, thanks to its distinctive art style and gorgeous music. If I have a criticism of the game, it's how the combat works. There's really nothing wrong with it, but it's just not really interesting. And while the game goes some ways to trying to fix that by giving you items and techniques that help make combat a bit more interesting, it's just not enough. By the end of the game, I would just avoid combat or use magic to wipe an entire room rather than trying to fight. The boss fights stand out as the most interesting combat encounters, but that's because they are more puzzles than a check of skill in swordplay. 
At the end of the day, though, the game more than succeeds in what it's trying to accomplish. To me, this is what the original Zelda should have been. It manages to convey the feeling of exploration and wonder that the original was aiming for while making it a well-structured and accessible experience out of it. And while A Link to the Past still remains as the only Zelda game I've completed, I'm really happy to have given this series a shot, and I'm looking forward to playing future games and see how they iterate upon the templates set here. Chaos9001 says, This was my first Legend of Zelda game, and it ignited my love for this series. I will always remember drawing maps of the Ice Palace to help a buddy of mine, while I should have been studying 7th grade English. However, I will never understand why the Wishing Well fairies think it's okay to take all of my rupees for bomb and arrow upgrades. War profiteering is bad. Thank you, Chaos. Craig says this Zelda really set the template for future Zeldas to come with so many things established in this entry. With good reason, too, it's a wonderful world to explore, buzzing with secrets and life and just the right balance of difficulty. Miyamoto has said that the bottles were his idea of a dynamic difficulty system where, if you thought it was too hard, you could stock up on fairies, or too easy, you could bring none. It's always fair and really makes you feel comfortable to explore, in stark contrast to Zelda 2. Even when you get to the dark world where suddenly everything looks odd and does a lot of damage, you're never penalised too harshly. The only issue I have is that because rupees are essentially worthless outside a few major items, another trait that has unfortunately carried forward to other Zelda games means that the thrill of finding a secret is sometimes undercut by an underwhelming reward. Big thumbs up to the sound design. The music is great with some wonderful songs, but the sound effects are where it really shines, particularly the stretching, growling roars of the bosses when they are hit and when they finally die. Fabulous. Rezo Bob, This was the second game I owned on the SNES. I still remember the awe I felt when I first saw the intro. It blew me away. I was used to a little or no story in an S- as NES and Commodore 64 games rarely had any compared to the original Zelda, which I still love, it showed me what video games could do. I have replayed it countless times due to the tight dungeon design and the large amount of secret items in the other overworld. It was the first game that truly allowed me to escape into it. I love that the w- wizard was Ganon. I thought that they changed the last boss just like Zelda 2. My favorite moment was when I first arrived in the Dark World and I realized that the game was bigger than I thought. Sean S. Thomas says, I've always been curious about A Link to the Past since I started playing the 3D Zelda games about a decade ago, so I picked it up on Virtual Console last summer to make up for Zelda Wii U's delay. However, I only started playing it when I saw Kane and Rince were covering the series in the new volume. Much like Super Metroid, which I also played in 2015 for the first time, the overriding impression I have of this title is how far ahead of its time it was. I owned a Master System at the time and progressed onto an Amiga and PS1, but this game far outstrips many of the best titles for those machines. So much of what I came to love about this series several years later was already present here. A huge variety of innovative accessories, complex dungeons, secret areas galore, a great sense of scale to Hyrule, that iconic theme tune and the ability to explore the world at your own pace. And for a game this old, that's incredible. At times I've enjoyed the combat and exploration more than in recent outings, In fact, I've discovered and worked out puzzles on my own that have given me a sense of achievement Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword's hand-holding assistance lacked entirely. I've also found areas hours before I needed to go uh, and got items that I still have no idea how to use. It feels like a genuine head-scratcher and quest. This inevitably leads to some minor problems too. At times I've had little idea what to do next. For example, how to find the silver arrows. Uh, Interjection from me here. Yes, the silver arrows are 
needed to complete the game, um, but it doesn't really make it very clear how to get them. Uh, so I completely understand Sean's issue there. Uh, all wasted hours trying to relocate NPCs in the wrong realm, but in fairness, the puzzles were largely logical. The only one I plain failed to crack was realising that a dark world warp portal and dungeon entrance was accessible using a medallion acquired by throwing a stone into a pool I had missed in a hard-to-reach swamp. I have uncharacteristically resorted to a guide on several occasions, more for general guidance than specific puzzle solutions, and due to the unkind respawn points post-death and my limited gaming time, I'm a serial abuser of restore points. Without either, I'm pretty sure I'd have thrown a towel by the third dungeon. I certainly couldn't have beaten Ganon without the ability to quick save. Other gripes are more personal issues. I don't love the Dark Realms in many of the Zelda games. The idea of a level having a dual purpose is incredibly clever, and Soul Reaver played with this amazingly well back in the day. But in the Zelda series, I see it as more of an irritation that takes me away from the fun and colour of Hyrule. So it's a shame you spend more of your time in it than the Light Realm. I also am a terrible navigator of 2D games. My sense of direction is great in general, and I can remember the tiniest of details in 3D game worlds, but here my brain struggles to differentiate one doorway from another. As such, I'd wager that 20% of my playtime in latter dungeons was spent merely trying to find previously unlocked rooms again. But all in all, A Link to the Past deserves the classic status it's regularly given. Even played for the first time 20-plus years after release, it's a great title and up there with the best adventures a gamer can have. Andrew Brown says, While A Link to the Past is just remembered as a well-crafted video game, one of the things it does best often goes unrecognized, how the player traverses space. While at first glance, A Link to the Past would seem to be an improvement mainly on the first game in the series, seeming to ignore the series' pariah Zelda II, in actuality, it's a compromise or synthesis of both these games and its approach to space. While the first game allowed the player relative freedom to explore the X and Z planes of the directional axis, the second moved the emphasis to the alternating between the X and the Y and the X and the Z planes. A Link to the Past allowed the player to explore all three dimensions while cementing the now classic top-down view. Every video game that utilizes three dimensions must do it by way of suggestion and illusion. Even our most sophisticated games are still two-dimensional image in reality. A Link to the Past in particular accomplishes this by creating not just multiple floors, but multiple levels within each floor. The player can not only go upstairs or downstairs between floors, but also upstairs and downstairs on each individual floor, creating a sensation via forced perspective of flat square rooms possessing depth as well as width. Players encounter this as early as the first dungeon, when they rescue Zelda from Hyrule Castle and find a safe path past the guards through previously inaccessible upper path and it's iterated upon with greater and greater complexity throughout the rest of the game today when even poorly made games still create a sense of three-dimensional depth through the use of contracting and expanding polygons it's easy to take for granted what a link to the past does with static sprites it would be foolish to do so, for it's the sense of depth and verticality which makes A Link to the Past work as well as, as it does, whether the player realizes it or not, and isn't the greatest trick of all the one you don't even realize you fell for? It's a game I struggle to find negative things to say about. In, in my most recent playthrough, the only negative thought that stuck with me was the nagging sense of Orientalism present in the Dark World, of the bright, good Europeanish castle 
Um, that is a centerpiece of the light world, and the dark foreboding pyramid ziggurats, that is the evil counterpart of the dark world. However, consider that the evil high, uh, sorry, consider that the castle hides within Algonim while the pyramid hides good, the great fairy. The rather blatant washing away of Christian references and iconography is a bit condescending too. The book of Medora is obviously a Bible. These are niggling bits of social criticism, and they far from ruined my return experience with the game. The Zelda series found its legs for the first time, but it was here, in its third entry, that it found its soul. Lovely stuff, Andrew Brown. Uh, now, an epic tale coming up from Suits here. Suits says, My Zelda history really kickstarts here. It's one that, for the early part of my years revolved around things being too far out of reach and my cousin that lived in Cardiff and was just two years older than me. I also blame this Zelda for introducing a luring depth to computer games that I'd previously never experienced, knew was there or even knew I wanted. It was, I think, the first computer game that I really started to think about after I'd turned the console off. 1991, my very first serious knowledge of Zelda was from a Nintendo sticker book that I must have had when I was about seven. Amongst other games I'd never heard of or played, there was a full double-page spread dedicated to Zelda. It looked odd and hard to understand, but I remember being totally mesmerised by the shiny for that game, Link's Shield. 1993, I'd had my Game Boy for a few years now. It had pride of place next to my Master System 2 and helped me bridge the gap between the Sega and Nintendo camps. I was aware of Zelda Link's Awakening, mainly from accidentally playing Mystic Quest on the Game Boy and being blown away in what was my first experience of an RPG. One day I collected all my Game Boy games, my pocket money, and convinced my father to drive me into town where there was a game exchange centre. Anyway, they had a Zelda cart and I wanted it. Much to my father's misunderstanding and anger he witnessed me trading most of my games and all my money for this game loved it totally it was everything i wanted needed and expected from it 1994 by now i was well aware of zelda and needed more one day i was visiting my cousin we were getting tired of playing super mario world and the other games he had at the time we were dreaming up ways of how we could play the legend of zelda a link to the past one day, in our quest to get hold of a cartridge outside of Christmas or impending birthday celebration, one of us came up with the idea of checking the free ads paper, to which there was an advert for a cartridge swap for a number of other SNES games, one of which being Hook. Hook had a dusty place in my cousin's library of SNES games, and after much egging and persuasion, we got our act together and began the trade finer points. Being about 11, my cousin being about 13, the idea of effort for no immediate reward was perplexing, but being old enough to understand that this was possibly the only realistic way we could get hold of the cartridge was a sobering one and focused us in organising the trade and essential postage dramas. I left my cousins that time with the hope that by the time I'd get back, possibly a few months or even longer, that the trade will have been completed and I could witness this wonderful game. 1995. By the time I'd managed to get my cousin get to my cousin's again, he had smashed through the whole game and was very blasé about it. Sort of in the manner, yeah, I've played Zelda and finished it. It was good. And then started talking about something else, possibly a Simpsons episode or another new game he rented or borrowed. All I wanted to see and play was Zelda. He loaded it up for me, and as soon as I saw the top of the pyramid with the cracked big hole in it, red tunic, colossal mirror shield, and the plethora of hearts across the top of the screen, I nearly died with enthusiasm and questions. I just needed to play the game for the story, the weapons, and how he managed to collect all of those extra hearts. 
It was at this point that my cousin was beginning to pine for my goods that I had bought, brought with me. I'd often bring my master system, or in later years, Mega Drive, up to Cardiff on visits so we could play each other's games. At the time, I'd just managed to get my hands on NHL 94, a truly great sports game that I had played the buttons out of. He wanted that. It was at that point our eyes lit up and we decided to swap consoles until our next encounter. I took home with me a SNES and a copy of Zelda linked to the past. That feeling of extreme possibility and excitement that grew from such a trade or one that's completed in the playground at break is something that you'll never manage to precisely recreate in adult life. It's such a wonderful, memorable feeling of childhood. Because of all this, I was filled with trepidation, going back to Link to the Past. I've played a lot of older games from this age and not always come away with the taste in my mouth that I was looking for. The last time I played this was on the SNES in the late 90s, not even to completion either, just to show someone it that had perhaps missed out on it i managed to fend off the urges to emulate it and when tempted put off by the rather expensive cart prices available online i honestly didn't know i honestly don't know what happened to my original copy more than likely it was traded in for a ps1 game a long time ago i played through on the wii u virtual console this time both on the big screen and the gamepad with headphones when the tv was unavailable the first thing I consider after the famous Rain Castle Sanctuary intro was the SNES colour palette, and graphics really played a strong game here. You feel that the whole scope of this system was pushed and even perhaps designed with this sort of title in mind. It's a perfect marriage of system capability and art design. Things just look so perfected, little details are enough to give personality to almost every non-mob character. Caves, hills, trees, dungeons all still look fantastic and have a soft, almost slightly 3D feel to them, like it was all made of Haribo. I did, however, find the main Zelda series adventure theme quite jarring and repetitive this time around. I couldn't remember it being so intrusive and remember liking it at the time. Coming back to it, I had to turn it down in the end as it was just giving me a headache. Thankfully, once you crack the Master Sword mission and then spend a large chunk of the game in the Dark World, the music switches and is much more sedate and easier to handle in large doses. Now, this may be something to do with the fact that this time around, instead of a mono-sound 12-inch CRT, I'm using a 50-inch plasma with 5.1 surround speakers. This may have caused the discomfort to the SNES chirps and pips, as when I was playing it on the gamepad, the music wasn't half as irritating. So, with all things considered, the score is still great, just maybe not designed to be amplified in such a modern way. The first third of the game, collecting the amulets and then the Master Sword, are sort of tutorials upon reflection, which will prepare you for the serious chunk of the game afterwards. Here, saving the princess would push you in new ways and challenge you in ways that the first third wouldn't. The first third teaches you combat, movement and items. In the second third, it's actually thinking, trial and error, an adventure that gets you through the rest of the game. This is where you'll spend the majority of your time in Link to the Past. A good balance of here are the tools, play the game, and you'll need your head to play this also. Brute force need not apply here, in, like in some modern-day RPGs, and was extremely refreshing to have to rely on skill and thought as opposed to levelling up a weapon or grinding to make a damage push. This, I think for me, in terms of style and graphics, is the best example of an old 16-bit game still holding up today. It stands the test of time very well. In terms of delivery and relevance, it still hits all its marks and numbers. It wasn't trying to look real. It was trying to tell a story and create a world that would best tell its tale. If this was remade in today's technology, it wouldn't be any better of a game. It wouldn't be any clearer in terms of story or application. This game was created by a team where design, graphics, storytelling, hand-holding all managed to plateau at the same point and arrive together to bring a perfectly rounded gaming experience. 
Not one point for me is stand out better than anything else. The world was large enough to hold mystery and surprise, but small enough to feel manageable and able to manipulate within your actions. Small encounters make the world seem larger than the initial feeling would suggest. Kiki the monkey that grants you, grants you access into the first princess dungeon is an example of variety to what is a common procedure of entering new areas. Small bits of programming that could easily have been cut out make all the difference in the long run. The programming seemed to offer reward of time spent, having to trudge all the way up the river to the waterfall to meet with Zora, only to find out that you needed 500 rupees, which at that point you probably didn't have, seemed fair and adventuring, then making the trip back later to get the flippers and swim back or investigate all the waterfalls and islands seemed genuinely rewarding. This is before the times of mission icons and overly obvious markers, which can sometimes dilute the actual thrill of adventuring. It was a great balance of world, rumours and accessibility. I hold an extremely fond place in my heart for the whole franchise, but more importantly, this game. It was something that brought family, excitement, expectation, delivery and reflection on a series and ultimately a whole genre that I haven't and possibly never will feel the same way again. Epic. <laughs> it's quite a story. Uh, Matthew J. Butler. A Link to the Past still feels like a genuine epic after all these years with its vibrant open world, ingenious dungeon designs, and a real character and emotions in the storytelling. There are some unforgettable sequences, such as wielding of the Master Sword in the Lost Woods, the first trip into the Dark World, and the opening scene in the rain when the world seems in a confused bad way. The intrigue and desire to explore is right there from the start. However, it's the little moments which lead to the game's real beauty. From the villages and their incongruous charm to spending hours just digging for rupees and playing mini games with the bow and arrow. I played this game relatively late in 1997, and although it took me a year to complete, and I was stuck on one section up on Death Mountain for two or three months, the magical feel of Hyrule meant I was happy to just explore. No frustration, no complaints of the bad game mechanics, just a sense of wonder and belief in the strange land and its heroic quest. Uh, this game is my favorite of all time, as it is so perfectly balances the engrossing and iconic story and its charm and playfulness throughout. The template was truly set here, and it's amazing how simple the pixel design of a small boy with pink hair can inspire so much sentimentality, wonder, and joy. A true work of art. Thank you, and finally, Matt Fantastic with a rather lovely story. Matt Fantastic says, I will never forget the first time I saw The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. It was the summertime and my parents decided to leave me at my grandparents for a long weekend. I was dreading it. The thought of being away from my friends and video games for an entire weekend was killing me. So when I went to store my belongings in the spare bedroom and saw a SNES hooked up under the TV, I was ecstatic. Turns out it belonged to my grandmother and she was in the process of completing A Link to the Past for the first time. That entire weekend was spent watching her play through the game and as soon as she finished it, she started again. It was an incredible weekend and I will always cherish those memories. I myself had never actually beat A Link to the Past until a few years ago when my grandmother passed away. After the funeral, I spent some time at her house with my grandpa. I remembered that weekend from my childhood and decided to see if she still had that SNES. Sure enough, buried under some old blankets in the garage, I found the Super Nintendo and A Link to the Past. I took them home straight away and spent the next two days relentlessly playing until I had finally beaten it. It was bittersweet, of course. The game was just as amazing as I'd have remembered, but I wish she would have been there to experience it with me. That SNES and the game are still sitting in my closet where I put them after finishing the game. Maybe I should dig them out and give A Link to the Past another go for Grandma. From the Sublime to Ryan Heyman's 
from Zelda Obscurity's Corner. <laughs> from the Sublime to Ryan Heyman. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so here we go with some of the other kind of non canonical, I don't know, canonical is the word for it, but uh, some of the other Zelda stuff that don't deserve their own show necessarily. Yes. In 1992, Epoch Co. released uh, Barcode Battler 2. This was a sequel to their. Very popular in Japan, barcode battler system, which was a little handheld device where you can scan in barcodes that represent characters, enemies, and power-ups that can be battled between each other. And um, and they licensed the Legend of Zelda property for this one. So you can either play as the warrior or wizard, that is Link or Link using magic, and the player <laughs> chooses enemies for Link to battle. Fight results are shown on the screen. And between fights, the player can swipe in item cards to heal Link or to give him a little bit of a leg up in the next battle. And after all enemies are defeated, the player must swipe in Ganon. Um, uh, the uh, the story kind of roughly follows um, the the standard uh, Link to the Past type story with a couple of adjustments, but it's yeah, it, it seems to be kind of a, a simple system of swiping in external cards, kind of like uh, Nintendo used with their e-reader cards uh, some years later, and mm. like they're reviving now with their Amiibo cards. But um, yeah, I guess it was a popular thing in Japan, so that's cool. Right. Uh, let's welcome Paul, Leia, and Josh back into the fray <laughs> as they help us out with some three-word reviews which were tweeted to us at Kane and Rince. Luke Summerhays says, set the precedent. Uh, Sean S. Thomas says, the series template. Peter Lachance, wow, absolutely groundbreaking. Glenn Watts, Zelda starts here. Nicholas Cook says, so many rupees. Craig D. Craig says, Zelda is your... Rob Hudak, my second favorite. Zach Singer, Sense of Adventure. The Salted Pork, Surprisingly Beautiful Art. Legendary Whizball, The One Ring. Matt Barnhart, my favorite Zelda. Galapinto, 2D Zelda Perfected. Andrew Brown, favorite classic Zelda. And Matthew J. Butler, High Rules Them All. <laughs> Like nice that. to end on a pun. Thank you, everybody. Uh, so to summarize, um, this is one of those games where we've done a podcast on a really beloved kind of, you know, a game that's uh, kind of pedestaled in a lot of ways. And it's very difficult to kind of sum everything up, I think. But um, uh, yeah, do you love it? Do you think people should play it? That's really what we want to know. Um, I love it. <laughs> I can speak for myself. Yeah, it's yeah. It it is a a really marvelous game, and uh, you know some of the systems like we talked about earlier, the combat mechanics, the specifics of of navigation, the kind of weird strafing stuff that that you do. Like it, there are parts of it that feel very modern, or at least very experimental. Uh, some of the things haven't really stuck, but some some of the things uh, really did blaze the path for not only what Zelda games would look like after this. But, um, you know, what, what action games in general would, uh, would go on to become. And I, I think it's aged very well. And, you know, since I'm not on the Ocarina of Time show, I don't mind preempting my opinion on that a little bit and saying that I don't think Ocarina of Time has aged that well. And so if you're going to go back to an old Zelda game, like this one holds up and remains, you know, just as glorious uh, perhaps maybe you know if this was something that you were completely seeing for the first time these uh 
kind of the graphics of the animals hopping on the field as you're walking up to the master sword or gathering around the little pan pipe uh, fellow as he's, he's playing away in the, um, that little clearing in the woods. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there were some really magical moments that maybe don't have the same pull as they, they would have uh, at the time, but, uh, but they still really wonderful and and really exciting. And, And I think that, that the the design, the combat, just everything about the game just hasn't really aged in any way. And so, uh, you know, I think if this is something that you're at all curious about, there's very little keeping you from it. There's a lot of systems you can play it on. And it, uh, it it's not one that, um, like the first two Zelda games, that aren't accessible any longer. This one's still as accessible as it ever was. So I'd say go for it. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, um, as I say, I played it first 20 years ago, just over. Um, and even though I've never been back through it, you know, all the way properly through it until this year for this podcast, um, I always considered it, uh, you know, one of the, the very highest games in my estimation, something of Nintendo's, you know, absolute peak in terms of design. Um, it feels precious to me and like something that was put together with the intricacy of a like a you know uh, a fine timepiece or something like that it's just it's so intricate and it's so self-contained and you know apart from you know certain i suppose you could you could say about the the busted economy and, and whatever whatever else but none of the flaws that there are really um detract from the overall experience and it, it was it was gratifying to go back after you know having said to people many times over two decades uh, that I considered this to be this astonishing game um, the playing through it again did very little to uh, to change that opinion it's um, obviously it's you know the second time is not as is, is not going to have the same amount of impact not two decades and thousands of, of different video games on but if anything I was pleasantly surprised by how pristinely it's aged um, and it also yeah took me back to a time when I think yeah, they they did manage to find that perfect uh, balance between uh, obscurity and leaving the player floundering, but not uh, tugging them through every experience by giving them big golden arrows to to follow and and you know too many obvious breadcrumb trails. So, yeah, I just think it's uh, it's a genuine uh, genuine work of art, as one of our correspondents said, Josh. So I was worried going into um, A Link to the Past that I would end up having uh, a similar experience that I had with Ocarina of Time, and it sounds like Ryan had quite a similar experience uh, to me with uh, Ocarina of Time, in that I appreciated how important that game was for the history of the medium, but having played so much of what had came, you know, came after it, um, Ocarina of Time ended up feeling quite bare bones to me. It, it felt, it felt like the foundation um, uh, of a great game rather than an, a rather than a great game in of itself. And uh, I I do love a lot of the games that came after it. I love Wind Waker, Majora's Mask, and and all those 3D titles, but not Ocarina of Time itself. 
So I, yeah, I went into this game worried that am I going to appreciate it as a piece of history, but not love it the way other people uh, love it. Um, but I'm I'm glad to say that, yeah, I I think a link to the past is kind of a masterpiece. Um, uh, it's aged really, really well. Um, any flaws or problems I have with it seem so small in comparison to everything it gets right. Uh, the music is fantastic. The sound design is great. The art style is one of, the, you know, it, I think it's one of the more appealing aesthetics of the entire series. And, you know, while the combat is not as deep as later entries, I think it's you know much more balanced and much more well considered than the earlier entries in the Legend of Zelda series and i think the dungeons are just a joy to go through um yeah i i think link to the past is well worth your time whether you whether you've um you know whether you're playing it again or have never played it you know i i think it's a, a fantastic experience thanks josh and to conclude with our guest who's really going to put the boot in now i reckon yeah uh, Leo, <laughs> uh no I, I i won't say that uh that link to the past is is a perfect game because i i definitely don't think it is but i i will say that it is an excellent game and um i something um josh i really liked what you said about um stuff like um ocarina of time maybe forming a foundation uh for for later games and particularly later zelda games and i think this does that too but at the same time that's not all it is it is it is on its own if it stood in a vacuum it would still be a wonderful game and it would still be something that it is extremely easy to recommend to pretty much anybody i mean if you enjoy Zelda games already and like for instance I did, I I played other Zelda games and then came back to this and still found it completely worth my time and completely worthy of of spending just so much of yourself kind of going through these dungeons and finding all the secrets and finding all the things that you could find Um, it's worth it if you're that it's worth it if you have never played a Zelda game and, and might think you might like this kind of um this kind of uh experience and you know it it's it's difficult to find a whole lot of situations in which I would say, eh, no, you probably shouldn't shouldn't actually try this because you're not going to like it. I, it's it's hard. I mean, maybe if all you like playing is you know shooters and sports games, then but in that case, you're probably not listening to this. So it would be very difficult for me to not recommend this. Um, I, I absolutely think that anyone who has not tried uh, a link to the past should should at least put some time into it uh, like we said it's very easy to get a hold of and um, see if it clicks with you uh, it's it's held up so well and uh, I think that everything that um, that that we've said should probably leave no surprises there in, in the kind of universal recommendation here but it, it really is true um, it uh, it is worth you looking at it to see what what you like um, out of out of this kind of experience maybe you'll get a tattoo like me you'll get a tattoo and get a tattoo yeah pink pink hair link tattoo that would be i don't have pink hair you know yet maybe you could get a pink hair link yeah on the other on the other side i'll I'll talk to my people (laughs) so it just remains for me leon to thank josh ryan and leah have you got anything uh any projects any any anything you want to uh you know 
plug let people know about at the moment uh, yeah sure um, I have a, uh, a blog um, that I have called late to the party chat to reference the fact that I am very frequently late to a lot of games um, that is at late to the party chat dot wordpress dot com and um, <laughs> actually funny story the very first entry in that I've been doing this for a couple of months now I started it last year um, but the very first entry on that was actually on Ocarina of Time um, ah. so uh, we'll tie in there but um, um, yeah, yeah, it's um, I, I frequently do not get around to playing games until well after they have been released, and sometimes well, well after they have been released. So um, this well, you're is, on the right podcast. Yeah, so this is kind of where I uh, where I indulge myself there. So um, give that a shout, give that a look, and uh, and see if uh, there are any in there that I missed the first time around that maybe you did too. Yeah, and um, yeah, if you're anything like me, every time you see someone say late late to the party on Twitter, LTTP, you think link to the past. <laughs> yeah. A little um, side bonus there. And you're going to come back and join us for at least one more, I think, Zelda podcast over the next year and a half or however long we're doing it. Yes, I can't remember which one. I'm, I'm on the books for a couple, I believe. Yeah, brilliant. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, and so next time listeners uh, in volume 5 issue 209 Warren Spectering Iron Storm's Millennial Cyberpunk Augmented WFP ARPG Deus Ex until then